You're listening to the Irish Times Worldview Podcast. Welcome to Worldview from the Irish Times. I'm Dennis Staunton. Today we'll ask why, when Britain's Conservatives are beset by splits, defections and by-election losses, it's the Labour Party leader Ed Miliband who's in trouble. And we'll hear from Catalonia about their unofficial referendum on independence and discuss the prospects of Madrid agreeing to allow the real thing. But we begin in Israel, where the Security Cabinet has been meeting amid rising tensions in the West Bank, in Jerusalem and in Israeli-Arab communities. Israel has already decided to deploy more troops to the West Bank to protect Israelis travelling to and from settlements. The move follows a series of violent incidents, including the fatal stabbings on Monday of an Israeli soldier and a civilian Israeli woman. This morning, Israeli soldiers shot dead a Palestinian protester near Hebron. I'm joined now from Jerusalem by our correspondent, Mark Weiss. Mark, perhaps you could just first bring us up to date about the events today. Well, today uh, started off very tense following yesterday's incidents. Um, Hundreds more Israeli troops were drafted to uh, the West Bank, fearing that uh, the violence uh, may spread throughout the West Bank. There were clashes today at various locations. In one incident, uh, a 21-year-old Palestinian was shot and killed by troops during protests. In another incident, a 15-year-old Palestinian was shot and seriously wounded. Um, It still remains very tense. Uh, Israel is sort of bracing for the worst possible scenario in that it could be, there's lots of talk, uh, that this could be the beginning of a new popular uprising, an intifada, uh, that may spread throughout the West Bank. It's still too early, in my opinion, to make that judgment, but these security forces are certainly bracing for such a possibility. And what is motivating these protests, Mark? Well, I suppose there's both underlying, uh, ongoing um, causes and there's triggers. Uh, of course, the major ongoing underlying cause is the, Israeli, the ongoing Israeli occupation of the West Bank, uh, which started in 1967, and uh, at the moment there seems uh, no end in sight to this. Uh, of course, this uh, causes great resentment amongst the Palestinians, um, particularly, uh, as I said, in a situation now when there seems little uh, hope on the, on, on the political horizon. Um, and there are triggers, as I said. Um, there has been a lot of very public visits uh, over the last few months by right-wing Israeli politicians to the Temple Mount site in Jerusalem's old city, um, demanding that uh, Jews be given uh, uh, the right to pray on the site. This is uh, also a holy site to... Um, to Muslims, they call it the Noble Sanctuary, and it's an extremely sensitive uh, issue. Uh, the Muslims, uh, rightly or wrongly, believe that Israel is pushing to change the status quo at this site, despite ongoing, persistent denials by the Israeli leadership, and this has caused a lot of tension uh, he- here in Jerusalem, certainly, and now seems to be spreading uh, to the West Bank, to the Israeli-Arab sector, and is certainly a uh, factor behind the wave of violence. Uh, Many of the violent incidents, Mark, appear to have been uh, individual incidents, stabbings, uh, as opposed to any kind of organized acts of terrorism. Is that a fair characterization of them? Very much so. Um, It seems to be uh, spontaneous acts carried out by uh, relatively young Palestinians, 
who may have had some kind of security background. A couple of them were, uh, have spent time in Israeli jails, but they're not active members of Hamas or Islamic Jihad or Fatah um, terrorist cells. They were not sent uh, as part of an ongoing terrorist campaign. They, are may, they, are, they may be seen um, television footage of uh, other Palestinians driving cars into Israeli uh, um, Israeli passengers waiting at bus, bus stops, or they've seen, or they've heard about on the news of uh, Palestinians stabbing uh, Israelis, and they're, take, they're taking a, they're following that example with similar attacks. It's, that seems to be the pattern at the moment, and, which of course yeah. makes it very difficult for the Israeli security uh, forces and the police uh, to thwart such attacks. And the Israeli response is a security response as opposed to a political response. At the moment, certainly, yes, there's uh, a feeling actually of helplessness here, amongst, certainly amongst the Israeli public. The, I think there's a widespread feeling that the government doesn't really know how to respond. Um, Jerusalem, which has seen the brunt of the violence over the last few months, the, the government decided to place concrete blocks around uh, uh, stops at the light railway to stop cars ramming into more passengers. They've certainly drafted, uh, there's a heavy security presence uh, on the line that divides uh, Arab East Jerusalem from Jewish West Jerusalem. Um, there have been statements, as I said, from Israeli leaders uh, trying to assure the Palestinian leadership that there is no Israeli um, attempt to change the status quo on the Temple Mount. But so far, all these measures um, uh, seem to not be very successful in stemming the tide of violence. Another part of the context, of course, is the continued building of uh, Israeli settlements in the West Bank and around East Jerusalem. To what extent uh, do, uh, does the Israeli public feel that this settlement building is an obstacle to peace? Well, as you know, Israel is a democracy. The public is divided on most issues, and particularly on this issue. Uh, some of the Israeli public believe that the West Bank uh, is uh, rightly uh, part of uh, the land of Israel, God-given uh, for many religious Jews, and no one has the right to take that away. Uh, many other Israelis believe in a two-state solution, and are opposed to almost all settlement building. However, it must be stated that uh, when it comes to Jerusalem, uh, and what we call East Jerusalem, that was captured in uh, parts of Jerusalem that were captured in the 1967 war, uh, there is a large uh, percentage of Israelis who would support construction of Jewish neighborhoods in these areas. Uh, how difficult is this situation politically for Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu? Well, this is his third term as prime minister, and he's made clear that he wants to go for a, a fourth term. Probably there's going to be elections in this country next year. He's always championed uh, himself as the prime minister um, who, when he was in power, um, managed to maintain a, a quite a high level of security and safety, a feeling of safety amongst the Israeli public. When he was in power, there, w there was no wave of suicide bombings uh, that racked the country in the uh, early 2000 period. Um, this now appears to be changing. Uh, and with it, of course, he will lose popularity. It's already beginning to happen. Uh, the, the latest polls show that 60% of Israelis wouldn't, would prefer him not to be the next prime minister. However, given that, 
there still remains a lack of a credible alternative as Prime Minister to Mr. Netanyahu. So he's still relatively firm uh, it, politically, as it stands, but his support is certainly falling. And if this wave of violence does spread further, particularly within Israel and the Israeli-Arab sector, then it, this will be politically bad news for Mr. Netanyahu. His rhetoric in the last few days also seems to have been heightened when he was uh, suggesting that uh, any Israeli, whether Jewish or Arab, who demonstrated in favour of a Palestinian state uh, should go and live in the Palestinian Authority or in the Gaza Strip. Is, uh, why would he start to say, uh, make remarks like this now? Well, I think it's tied into what I just said, that uh, elections are looming in this country, probably sometime next year. And as I said, Netanyahu does not, uh, at the moment at least, have a serious threat from the centre-left in this country. However, he does seem to be losing support uh, amongst his right-wing base to um, elements further to the right, particularly the head of the uh, Jewish Home Party, his coalition partner, uh, the younger and more charismatic uh, Naftali Bennett. Uh, we can uh, perceive these uh, hardline comments, if you like, by the Prime Minister as an attempt to shore up his right-wing support. And just to go back to the fears of another uprising or intifada, what exactly are the options politically for uh, the uh, government in Israel and indeed the Palestinian Authority in terms of trying to defuse the situation there? Well, we remember we just coming a lot, we, we came out of nine months of fruitless uh, talks between Israel and the Palestinians. The negotiators sat down, but as far as we know, they made very little, if, if no, uh, progress whatsoever. U.S. Secretary of State John Kerry is trying to push the sides to renewing uh, the negotiations, but I don't think that's a realistic option at the moment. The uh, diplomatic uh, prospects look very bleak at the moment, um, and this, of course, will have an effect uh, on the domestic Israeli political scene because... Um, the, the left and center parties, which traditionally uh, promote a two-state solution for many uh, in, amongst the Israeli public, that is no longer, certainly at the moment, a credible option. Mark Weiss in Jerusalem, thank you. You're listening to the Irish Times. Catalonia in northern Spain held a symbolic referendum last Sunday asking voters if they wanted their region to be a state and if so, if they wanted it to be independent of Spain. The vote was overwhelmingly in favour of independence, but it had no legal status because Spain's constitutional court said that a real referendum would have been unconstitutional, and the government in Madrid has dismissed the vote as fruitless and useless. So what's next for Catalan's nationalists, and is there any way of finding common ground with Madrid? To discuss this, I'm joined from Madrid by our correspondent, Guy Hedgeco. Guy, what is exactly the status of this vote, or the meaning of this vote? Well, it's not a binding referendum. Even those who organised the vote, the, the Catalan regional government, said as much. They said it's not a binding referendum. It was really an, an unofficial uh, referendum, uh, which was taking the temperature of, of Catalan opinion on the issue of independence. It has no sort of legal repercussion, uh, and certainly in, in light of the government's uh, opposition to it, the central government's opposition to it in Madrid, that's certainly the case. So it has no legal framework. But uh, in the end, it was a symbolic vote. It was a vote which just showed how strongly people feel about uh, the issue of independence, even though the result itself 
rather skewed the actual opinion of Catalans because uh, polls generally show that Catalans are split down the middle, more or less, on the issue of independence. About 50% of them actually support it. In this, uh, this vote, just over 80% of people who voted voted in favour of independence. And the reason for that is because most people, the vast majority of people who do not want independence, stayed away from the voting stations on the day. Now, you were there in Barcelona on Sunday, and when you were talking to people who were voting, what were they saying, or why, why did they think that it mattered that they should vote? Well, I mean, I spoke to a lot of people, young and old, uh, about what they felt, and, and the, the common theme, really, was uh, that they just felt they had the right to express themselves um, in, in, well, in, a, in a, a, an unofficial vote or an official vote. I mean, they wanted it to be official, it was not in the end, but they said, we have the right to do this. It's democracy in action. And they were very frustrated at the attitude of the central government in Madrid, uh, trying to thwart this effort at, uh, at expressing themselves. Uh, and overall, there was a feeling of uh, that, that Madrid doesn't understand them, that uh, this is not just a one-off, that for, for decades now, they, f they feel... Uh, the, the central government of Madrid and the, the Spanish state overall has failed to understand Catalans and how they feel they're rather different from the rest of Spain and that it has constantly interfered in their affairs. So what happens next after this? Are we just at an impasse between uh, Madrid and the, uh, and the Catalan regional government? Well, certainly Sunday was at the culmination of a couple of years of building tensions between Catalonia and Madrid. And so we're seeing probably a new phase now, sort of post-November the 9th phase now. We've just heard today from uh, the Catalan regional premier, Artur Mas, who organized Sunday's vote. And he was talking about his sort of roadmap for the coming months uh, as he seeks to move the country towards independence. He said that he wants to negotiate a definitive referendum with the Spanish government, something like the Scottish referendum from September. Uh, now, that looks extremely unlikely. There's a lot of pressure on Prime Minister Mariano Rajoy in Madrid from the, the political right not to budge an inch on this issue and not to cede the Catalans any more uh, autonomous powers and certainly not independence or a referendum in independence. Um, so uh, Artur Mas said that if he's unable to get uh, an, an, a, a pacted referendum out of the central government, he will uh, call early regional elections in Catalonia and use those as a plebiscite on the issue of independence. So if pro-independence parties won an overwhelming victory in, in that vote, then they would see that as a mandate to be able to move towards independence. Now, we don't know... If such, an, uh, if such an election will go ahead or when it would happen. Uh, but that looks like a more likely uh, scenario rather than some kind of pacted referendum with the central government. Now, you mentioned, Guy, you mentioned the uh, Scottish referendum. And what happened there was, of course, that the pro-union parties at the last minute, they uh, succeeded in winning that referendum mainly because they offered home rule and so they uh, offered the Scots more autonomy. Is there any prospect of Madrid doing anything like that? 
Well, there's a lot of pressure uh, on Prime Minister Mar Mariano Rajoy to, to not even consider that outcome. And, and at the moment, he's saying that uh, he's not. Uh, and there has been a, a sort of conspicuous lack of negotiation or contact even between Madrid and Barcelona uh, in recent months. And a lot of people, a lot of observers have been dismayed at this, the lack of any kind of uh, talks or, or negotiation or attempt to reach out uh, by Madrid. Now, the, the opposi opposition socialist party uh, on a national level are very much advocating some kind of third way whereby uh, Catalonia would get that kind of Devo Max sort of option where they would get increased autonomous powers, but not full independence. Uh, and, and polls actually show that many Catalans uh, think that would be the ideal solution for them as well. So, it's an option which has a lot of support, uh, I think, among many Spaniards and certainly among Catalans. But the governing popular party of Mariano Rajoy says it's not considering that at the moment. So I think with this central government in Madrid, uh, which could possibly be unseated next year, by the way, um, but with this, the current government we have in Madrid, I think it's unlikely that we'll see anything similar to what uh, London was offering Scotland. Guy Hedgeco in Madrid, thank you. You're listening to the Irish Times. Britain's Prime Minister David Cameron and his Conservative Party have already lost one by-election to the anti-Europe United Kingdom Independence Party, and they look set to lose another next week. The Prime Minister faces unrest inside his party from Eurosceptic rebels, and opinion polls suggest that the Conservatives have no chance of winning an overall majority at the general election next May. But it's the Labour leader, Ed Miliband, who's been in the headlines for all the wrong reasons lately, with talk of plots to oust him and plans to persuade him to step down of his own accord. So what has Mr Miliband done wrong? And is his party really thinking of ditching him six months before the election? To find out, I'm joined from London by our London editor, Mark Hennessy. Mark, what exactly is Ed Miliband's problem right now? Well, part of his problem is image. He comes across to the public at large as being somewhat geekish, somewhat disconnected from uh, the public reality. And uh, again and again and again, the opinion polls are showing that the British public simply have not warmed to him. Unlike Cameron, for instance, uh, Miliband's numbers are behind those of the Labour Party. So he is not a an advantage to Labour in terms of uh, a an election campaign when it gets into the presidential stakes. Uh, unlike Cameron, who actually is ahead of the, the Tory numbers, and no matter how many uh, people in the Conservatives despise Cameron, and they do, they do have to accept that he is an electoral advantage to him. That same uh, argument doesn't work when you go talking to Labour MPs. And remember, if you go back to 2010, when he was elected, uh, there were a number of different colleges within the Labour family who had uh, the entitlement to vote, and the unions backed him, um, uh, the wider affiliated organisations backed him, but the MPs did not. And they, the majority of them have never been <coughs> persuaded about his merits, and they've been uh, progressively uh, dis made disenchanted uh, about them uh, as time has gone, gone on, particularly because of the leadership style that he has, which is seen as being somewhat remote and not um, uh, availing of the talents within the camp and that he keeps going back to the same small number of people and he doesn't talk to everybody else. Now, the, uh, Ed Miliband's people will say that all of these rumours about plots against him, that it's all just got up by the media. Is that true? 
Uh, no, it's certainly been exaggerated by the media, uh, or amplified, I think might be a better word, but uh, the, the raw discontent is there, and it was sparked particularly by a number of events. One, the outcome in Scotland uh, during the referendum and the way in which the Scottish Labour organisation was shown up to be pretty moribund and in serious danger of losing large numbers of seats in the next election. That really rattled uh, Labour across Britain because obviously the Scottish numbers are needed if they have to have any hope of forming a government next time. Then we had the Haywood and Middleton by-election outside Rochdale, a traditionally safe uh, Labour seat, and yet uh, UKIP ran them within six votes. That terrified people. In Rochester uh, and Strood, where there is a by-election in 10 days' time, that again uh, has caused serious worries. Labour MPs have been down there. It was a a Labour seat up to five years ago, and now Labour are not even seen as being within hailing distance. Uh, of uh, a decent result, let alone uh, uh, any chance of winning it. And that, again, has uh, terrified uh, people in Labour, because if they're not picking up seats in that M25-plus belt, they have no hope uh, of forming a a government uh, after next May. So will they actually move against him? No, you see, this is the problem that Labour has. Labour can't do leadership assassinations. Uh, the Tories can do it in a week, uh, which has always been an advantage for them. The Labour leadership election structure is so complicated that even if you telescoped it and hurried it on, it would still take the guts of three months to go from uh, assassinating a leader and putting in a new one in his place. And when you're looking at an election next May, that clearly is not an option. So therefore, you have to ask, why were Labour... Labour MPs talking out the sides of their mouth uh, over the last week, and they were in great numbers, uh, about their discontent and despair. And one uh, individual put it to me rather well. He said, there are times when you become so depressed and so frustrated that you have no choice and no option but to actually talk and to express your feelings simply because uh, the mood has become so bleak, even when one knows that talking about leadership woes in such a context actually makes your chances of winning the election uh, even harder. So there is no option for them for simply to, uh, to, by acclamation, choose somebody. I know that uh, Alan Johnson, the former uh, minister, who uh, he's already ruled himself out, but that hasn't stopped people from saying he might be the saviour or some kind of a dream ticket of some other members of the Shadow Cabinet. Yeah, no, it's, it doesn't work like that because the, the unions will want their say, um, all the affiliated organisations, Fabian Society and a million others, all will want their say. And all of that, you know, electoral ballots and post ballots and all the rest of it. Uh, it simply takes time to do that. Now, I mean, the Conservatives can't believe their luck. Uh, instead of attacking them, uh, the, the Labour are focused on internal battles. Uh, we're looking at a, a, an election campaign which is effectively beginning to uh, already get into gear, and Labour are distracted. So that is um, uh, a key advantage for them. The difficulty that Labour has is that whilst Miliband has been right on a great number of issues over the last number of years, He was ahead of the curve in reflecting the public's disenchantment with the the economic recovery, the sense that they're not getting a fair deal. He was ahead again on the issue of business ethics. Uh, Levison, for instance, he was also ahead of the public curve on that. He has 
had a number of, of tactical victories like that and yet has been unable to create a wider narrative about why he is the man who should be the next uh, Prime Minister. And when it comes to that leadership battle, who would you trust to be in Downing Street at 3am to take the, the emergency phone call, harking back to the Clinton advert of 2008 against Obama? The, um, that has always uh, led to uh, the British public saying they would prefer to take David Cameron and until that changes... Uh, Ed Miliband has a very serious problem on his hands. Is there anything that he can actually do about it? If uh, you know, given that, as you say, they're stuck with him, so uh, so uh, is there anything he can do to improve his standing? Do you think over the next few months? Well, he has to fight uh, a campaign that's built on the party rather than built on himself. So it, it has to be one that is uh, very focused on constituencies where they can hope to gain or hope to protect uh, seats from losses. So uh, they can't put his picture on uh, the election poster. But parties have won before when they have somewhat put the, the leader uh, into the background. It doesn't happen very often, but it has happened. Uh, so that, that certainly um, uh, could, uh, 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 could occur. The the, the difficulty that they have in many ways is that so many people here in Westminster refuse to accept that the reality has, has changed in British politics. We are no longer into a two-party system where uh, the Labour and the Conservatives take practically all of the vote. We're looking at a situation now where Labour and, and the Conservatives in May 15 will probably be doing well to get a combined uh, vote share of a little bit more than 60%. And that means with UKIP uh, coming up on the rails, with the SNP doing very strongly in uh, Scotland, um, uh, and independence perhaps being a, a larger uh, feature of, of uh, British life than before, that that is going to make it hard for either Cameron or Miliband to form uh, a government next time. And we're certainly in a situation now where we can say with pretty much certainty that neither Labour nor the Conservatives will be able to rule on their own. It is beginning to look as if a straight two-party coalition, particularly if the Lib Dems get really massacred, uh, that a two-party coalition could be quite difficult to manage, uh, in which case you are talking about a multi-party coalition being the only option. And we've seen over the last five years how difficult the system finds it here to cope with a two-party one, one struggles to uh, think what the, the difficulties that they would face if they were trying to deal with a multi-party one. Can we go back to Scotland for a moment? You were saying that uh, we've seen since the Scottish referendum and the people of Scotland rejected the idea of independence. But nonetheless, since then, we've seen a surge of support for the Scottish National Party. Why? Well, the Scots sometimes can be good at uh, nursing an air of grievance, and they have been given much ground for it by the rather cack-handed manner in which David Cameron responded to the vote. when he came, uh, That morning, after the result was declared, he came out immediately talking about granting extra powers for England, uh, instead of saying, we are once again one happy family, and dealing with all of the issues that uh, subsequently that obviously need to be dealt with. So we're now in a situation where the Scots feel that Westminster is going to do the down and it's not going to give what it promises or what it promised before the, the referendum and even if it gives everything that it promised uh, the landscape has changed to such an extent that Scots will feel that they haven't got uh, all that they were they were promised uh, the SNP's membership has tripled they've now got 80 odd thousand members it's quite extraordinary 
uh, that in itself over a period of time is going to have an impact. Many of those people are much more fundamentalist in their views on um, uh, on independence, and most of them certainly are far more left-wing than uh, much of the traditional SNP membership, which is very similar to Fianna Fáil. It's a broad church. It covers every sort of um, uh, viewpoint, whereas now uh, that uh, has changed. Labour's organisation is, is simply awful in, in Scotland. Um, They've won seats simply by just putting people up uh, and, and expecting the traditional vote to come out and support them, which it's done. But it's not going to do that in May unless it, uh, it is actually brought out there. And uh, Labour has 41 of the 59 seats. They need each and every one of those. At the moment, they will certainly lose 10 of them and they could lose an awful lot more. Finally, Mark, uh, you mentioned the Conservative Party rubbing their hands in glee at uh, Ed Miliband's woes, but they've got plenty of woes of their own, don't they? Or at least David Cameron has been running up against a certain spot of bother in the House of Commons this week. He has. Uh, they, it's the issue of the European arrest warrant, which is obviously a very controversial issue for many uh, Eurosceptic MPs uh, who believe that it has been abused and that British citizens have been improperly extradited to face uh, 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 put up charges in Romania, Greece and a number of other countries and they've had really serious problems with it. Now this week um, the British government is attempting to sign back into about 35 measures uh, of justice and home affairs measures uh, that were agreed in uh, Lisbon and there uh, the British opted out of 135 issues but allowed themselves the right to opt into back into 35 of them including the extradition warrant and then they came up with a most extraordinary parliamentary wrangle last night where they put a motion to MPs on 11 of those 35 issues uh, not including the European arrest warrant and then tried to claim that they would use a yes vote on the 11 to, to say that the MPs supported the, uh, the return of the European arrest warrant. Now that's just far too um, um, uh, slapdash uh, a, a manner to behave inside in the House of Commons. Uh, Conservative MPs who would be very conscious of parliamentary dignity and the primacy of the House of Commons and all the rest of it reacted in outrage. And they're now in a situation where Labour is actually going to force them to come back on Wednesday next week to face a single key debate on whether uh, the United Kingdom should sign back into the European arrest warrant. And th the irony of it is that uh, Theresa May last night would have won a straight vote if uh, on the European arrest warrant with no great rebellion of any significance. And instead, they created a parliamentary uh, debacle of such a, a, a scale that they've seriously damaged her reputation with uh, Conservative MPs, many of whom see her or at least saw her as being a potential Prime Minister after David Cameron. And it has, uh, again, badly damaged the reputation of Michael Gove, uh, who is now Chief Whip, who is uh, seen as having been too smart by half. And that vote on the European arrest warrant is going to happen on the eve of that by-election in Rochester, which are we expecting UKIP uh, more or less definitely to win that one? Well, a month ago, uh, the Tories were exceptionally confident about winning in Rochester, and today you will find none of them who will express a similar opinion. Mark Hennessy in London, thank you. And that's all from this edition of Worldview. You can hear more on all our stories at irishtimes.com. You can contact us at worldview at irishtimes.com and you can find more Irish Times podcasts at irishtimes.com slash podcasts. But from producer Sinead O'Shea, sound engineer Gary White and from me, Dennis Staunton, goodbye.